welcome to Zoom O'Clock with your host, Tessie Anthony de Nassau. This podcast brings you enlightening discussions with leading experts and public figures directly to your ears. Welcome, everyone, to Zoom O'Clock with your host, Tessie Anthony de Nassau. Today, my guest is Dr. Mara Catherine Harvey. She is a pioneer in her domain and definitely a trailblazer when it comes to change. She's also a fellow sister of a sisterhood that I have here in Zurich. And it's just an absolute pleasure to have you here, dear Mara. Hi. Hello, Tessie. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule. It's always wonderful to see you. Let me introduce our wonderful guest to all of you listeners and to all of you watching this on YouTube. So, Mara, STG5 Advocate and Financial Justice Champion Award winner 2018 from Berlin. She's the author of Woman and Risk 2018 and A Smart Way to Start, a rhymed book series on money, equality, and sustainability for kids. I will, of course, put you at that website below the link of the podcast and the YouTube channel for everyone to go and explore, specifically the parents and the teachers who are listening to this. As senior leader with 20 years experience in finance, she's passionate about driving innovation to make private capital a force for good. She founded and led a groundbreaking global program to better serve female clients and make gender equality investable, building an award-winning team. The program facilitated hundreds of millions of investments in SDG5. She, is also, she also holds a doctorate with highest honors in political economy from Fribourg University and a degree in economic policy and econometrics. She is quadrilingual and a frequent speaker at international conferences with over two decades of experience in economic gender equality, among many, many other things you're doing. People can find you, of course, on LinkedIn under Dr. Mara Catherine Harvey. Dear Mara, welcome. It's so lovely to be here and to talk to you about all of these things that are so dear to my heart. It's fantastic to have you. So let's dive in straight away. As a parent, of course, your book here is a, a smart way to start has really gotten my attention. I'm also UNAIDS ambassador for young women and adolescent girls. And as such, there is some exciting news you have to share with us. So my first question to you, what is the book series about? Why did you think we need a book series like that in today's time? And what is that? What are these exciting news that I just referred to? So it's a pleasure to explain to you why this book series came to life. It came to life uh, because I was doing quite a lot of work with regards to women and finance and female financial participation. And all of the research I was doing led me to understand that there's a deep bias in the way we talk about money to women and to men, and that actually that bias starts super early. It's everywhere in society. And it becomes visible with analysis that has been done across many countries on pocket money. And would you believe it that by the age of 10, girls already experience a pocket money pay gap? 
they get 10 to 30% less than the boys. And this isn't because any parent would discriminate against their daughters, but it is just all of this uh, societal bias that steers the boys towards earning and the girls towards spending that creates a bias at a very early age. And so I was determined to change that and to create accessible, easy and fun stories on money so that the girls in particular, but of course the stories are okay for the boys as well, they, they target both children, but it was important in particular to give the girls a tool to talk about money and to be encouraged to talk about money, to understand their worth, to understand earning and the fact that it wouldn't be fair for a girl to earn less than a boy and why should they if they're doing the same job equally well. And as I wanted to introduce money to children, I also wanted to introduce the notion of sustainability that is so dear to my heart and also uh, was part of my journey through the financial industry to realize that every money choice we make can have a positive impact if we're mindful about those choices. So that was the reason why I wanted to bring this conversation to kids, because I believe that the earlier we start, the better we can shape the future. That is very exciting. Yeah, I cannot wait to read the books myself. I also have already made sure that a lot of people know about it because I think financial education, when it comes to children in general, um, specifically girls, I understand, but also for boys, as a mother of two boys, uh, is really something that a lot of people do not do yet, or parents. Um, for example, for me, myself as well, I, I, I have always been very much into making my children understand the value of money, how important it is to save how to spend money, what it means, you know, to earn money and all of these things, because my children are growing up in a very privileged environment, and yet they are being asked to grow up mm -hmm. as normal as possible. And as such, I think it's my duty as a mother to make sure that they understand that um, from nothing comes nothing, and that also the way you spend money will really affect your life in either a positive or a negative way, you know, because nowadays there's all of these perks and peaks that you can get where you can pay later and all of these different credits and all of that stuff and children don't understand that so we have such a high rate of youth debt as well also with youth not being able to afford their housing anymore um, buying a house let alone other things and I think uh, financial education it cannot be as it can there's no age the earlier the possible so the the, the more important what do you think of that Yes, look, uh, totally with you. I think our children face an unprecedented challenge, which is twofold. The first is they're likely to live to 100 years and beyond. And even if you just simplify that and think, okay, let's take um, an average and say they're going to study until they're 20, they're going to work from 20 to age 70, which is 50 years of active life, and they're probably going to be retired for at least 30 years. That means that whatever they earn during those 50 years will need to last them another 30 years, right, to fund their, their well-being and their quality of life after retirement. And we know that there are, there's a crisis of our pension system. So the ability of a person to save and to manage savings for the long term is really, really important. You rightly pointed out a debt. There really is um, so much advertisement that surrounds children around the notion of buy now, pay later. 
But in a society that is aging, this is just not a good strategy. We really need to teach our kids that they should earn now, save, and buy later, uh, and not the other way around. So these skill sets are actually not just important to teach kids to be responsible about money as such, but it will be precious for for their future. And in the context of uh, shaping that future, and this ties in with the good news that you asked me to share, We really need people and children in particular to understand what shapes a good future for ourselves, for our society and for our planet. So the fifth book of my series, which is the latest book, is all about the sustainable development goals. So after explaining to kids in the previous four books how to earn, how to save, how to spend wisely and how to make good consumer choices, we need to understand what is it that we need to steer our money towards so that we can lead fruitful lives and sustainable lives and things that are good for our planet. And the fabulous news is that the fifth book has been endorsed uh, by the United Nations and will be appearing in the United Nations Library very soon in order to support awareness uh, for the Sustainable Development Goals. So I'm super happy to be partnering with the UN on that topic. Wow, that is so exciting. I, I cannot wait to have uh, to see the official logo of the UN on the book. And congratulations from me and I'm sure from all of the listeners. This is quite an achievement and quite Thank a you. service to the public as well. I think it's really fantastic. Um, an example I have, and that makes you probably laugh, but also it, it, it shows the reality of uh, financial education as well in our educational system and how our educational system in general for our children needs to also adapt to accommodate this new skill um, to, towards our children. I had my little one. So I have two, two teenage sons now, and I'm expecting another one. And um, with that in mind, my oldest, he saves like crazy. He has an amazing savings and all of that stuff. The little one is exactly the opposite. He spends as soon as he gets it, it's gone, right? And it makes me laugh. But I always, I don't give up. You know, he's still young and we can get him there. But what happened, a story which I think, you know, and that will be my next question as well. um, He got into debt in school in, uh, because he spent too much money in the sweetie shop. And uh, I didn't know. And so just because he gets pocket money from me every week. And uh, so then the school writes me an email and says, oh, I'm sorry, um, Mama Noah, right? Uh, can, you, can you send him more money because he made debt so he can fix his debt? And I wrote him back and I said, absolutely not. I said, he gets pocket money every week. And now he needs to assume his responsibilities and he needs to pay it back himself. And I had a huge discussion with him and I I was really not happy about that because I said to him, we don't do that. Not like that. I said, you cannot overspend what you don't have. And I said to the school, rather than asking me to spend, give him more money, I said, why don't you create like a workshop for the children where you can teach our children who are now with corona more buying to school in general if they're either completely at home or they need to remain in school my children needed to remain in school even on weekends because they didn't want to increase the infection rate um, possibility so they said in order for the kids to go to school we like to keep them here uh, and they will be in a little bubble here right which was nice but that means that they were quite independent in a lot of ways. And that topic came up 
right? Mm -hmm. Can you please send in money? So they have some pocket money and everything, no problem. But I think the financial education is missing. Have you seen that too? And how do you think we can bridge that gap? Because still in school, all of these new skills, such as financial education and also meditation and all of these other things that are now coming up more and more are just not being taught properly. How can we make that happen? Because I feel as a mother that there's still quite a lot of resistance towards this in our traditional educational system. Look, I, I do think that there's a bit of a gap in the education system when it comes to financial literacy. And uh, this is something that I'm a huge advocate for, be it with adults, be it with children, because uh, even in Switzerland, which is one of the leading financial marketplaces globally, only um, 57% of adults are financially literate, meaning that they fully understand the long-term consequences of inflation, of compound interest and of diversification. Now, this is actually quite tragic because it means, let's just ground it, say if one in two adults does not understand um, the basics of finance, what are the chances that the next generation is going to grow up with right knowledge? So we have to bridge the gap. We have to bridge the gap on both sides, getting schools more involved, getting parents more involved. Now for schools, this is a difficult conversation because the minute you touch the topic of money, you touch on the topic of inequalities. Mm -hmm. And it is hard for schools to navigate that dialogue. And indeed, uh, this is also the reason that in many countries, schools choose to uh, have uniforms for kids, because that way you reduce inequalities. And introducing uh, concepts of finance and of money really opens up sometimes uh, a discussion that is difficult for the schools to manage, which is why it's so important that parents take this upon themselves to impart financial literacy to their kids because the kids are not learning it elsewhere. And I think you did a great thing there with the school to say, look, no, it's not going to help if I just pay the bill of my child. I've heard that also from other parents who have told me something similar. You know, the kids can get sweeties at, at the school on credit, right? It gets written to their account, but they're, they're spending too much. And the parents only find out at the end of term or the end of the quarter when the bill comes home. And... Um, this is this reflects also the di difficulty uh, that our kids are growing up with. So I mentioned one, which was longevity. And the other topic is really growing up with digital money, because we are in a world where you no longer have that physical separation process from money, right? You receive your pennies as a child. You have to actually give away your pennies to buy something. Mm -hmm. And that physical separation process is like a child learning to share its toys. It's not an easy process to learn to give away something. But with digital money, the kids have the feeling that they're actually not giving away anything. It's a tap or a swipe of a card and you still have the card in your hand and some magic number somewhere appears and disappears. Mm -hmm. But you do not feel the weight of how hard it is to earn that money before you can spend it. And I think this adds complexity. I think this makes it even more challenging for us as parents to teach our kids to handle money wisely in a world that uses money, I would say, pervasively in every activity every day on our computers and in our lives, mm -hmm. where very little of it is still visible to our children. 
Yeah, exactly. No, and it's it's totally true because with my sons as well, now with Corona in the UK, a lot of schools have asked that we provide credit cards, well, debit cards for our children. And uh, already the process for me to get a debit card for my children because I wanted then a children debit card, which has restrictions, it's safe, I have on my phone, you know, all of these things. And um, yeah, it is it is really my children don't always realize. So I send them their balance every week and say, you know, here and there. But it is true for them. It's just my oldest understands it better. But my youngest, he just forgets. And he's like, yeah, okay, great. Here and there. Then then I get text messages because the card has been declined when he was again in, in the toy shop or something like that with his little friends. And he gets frustrated because he doesn't understand. And he said, no, I got my pocket money. And I said, yes, but you already spent it. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I need to send him a, a track record of the statements of, of his last spendings. And it's just it's a beautiful conversation because I can see that he's learning with it. But it's just I think if you would, as you mentioned, you know, if the conversation would be more organic and natural also within the environment that they have in school, um, it would just be easier for the parents or even like a parent's workshop. But as you said, People don't touch the topic at all. No one talks about it because of these inequalities, especially now with Corona as well. Um, People don't like to talk about money because a lot of people have lost their jobs, have lost a lot of money, have lost all kinds of materialistic things and um, which which make their life really hard now. And so the last Mm -hmm. conversation they want to have is something like that when it comes to their children or with their children. They want to make it as easy as possible for the children and take away the burden if you want, um, because they still see financial education as a burden um, and they want the kid to be a kid, right? Mm-hmm. That's also yes. the conversation. But I make sure, uh, so as the listeners can hear and the ones on YouTube can see, this is really a topic to dive into and your books to really get. So please go and check out Mara's books because I think they're fantastic and they have received numerous reviews and everyone really talks about it. I even had, I had, uh, I had, I gave a talk at at a big financial institution not long ago, and after my talk, there was people there, staff who got back to me and asked me specifically for the titles of your books because they, as working for a financial institution, they didn't know which resources they should provide for their children because it's such a new topic. So I think this is really, really, really cool. And um, I highly recommend it. Another topic briefly then, uh, which is also dear to my heart and obviously also to you, um, is equality in the workplace when it comes to uh, to women. And the financial industry has and is still a very difficult place to maneuver for women. You know, there's more opportunities, but still that's often because of quotas and the stereotypes and um, the the greenwashing of of good words and and strategies and so on is still very much alive, right? So as a personal experience for you, you know, you are really on the top of the top, have worked in it for more than 20 years, have seen it all in all kinds of sectors and countries and, and so on, you know. What is your key takeaway? You know, how did you get to where you are today? And also in a positive aspect, how can women inspire to get to where you are today? Because I'm sure there's some female um, entrepreneurs, female financiers, students who want to go into finance and so on, who are listening to this. 
how can they get there? Because there's still so many barriers. What would you suggest? Oh, big question. Look, I loved um, my experience in finance. I must say, when I started out, I didn't know where the journey would take me. I am an economist and econometrist by background, as you mentioned, so a huge passion for numbers. But I knew very little about the world of banking when I entered the financial industry. So um, it was, I would say, a bit of trial and error at the beginning of my career to understand what exactly is a bank, how many different professions are there within a bank. And um, I was um, steered, I would say, by my bosses into the world of private banking uh, at an early stage because the private banking industry was under a massive transformation. It was already clear that banking secrecy would end. This was now 20 years ago, and it was already foreseeable that it would come to an end, that the world needed to evolve towards transparency, towards uh, wealth being managed in a way that it is taxed where it is generated, even if it is managed in different parts of the planet. And um, I think it was that journey of transformation of the industry that opened up a lot of opportunities. So my advice to people who are keen to enter this industry is you need to have a high degree, I would say, of curiosity, of willingness to learn and of flexibility. Because it was it was very interesting. Uh, one uh, one day, I think this was after some ten or fifteen years in the industry, um, uh, a headhunter uh, approached me and uh, then had a look at my CV and said, "You haven't really done the same job for more than a couple of years ever. It's like, are you capable of doing something for the long term?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "But I've been fifteen years with the same company. What do you mean? Am I capable of doing one thing for the long term?" But it was an interesting dialogue because it reflected the fact that the industry transformed itself so so fast. So reorganization upon reorganization, new structures, new uh, attempts to capture different segments uh, across the wealth uh, industry, different uh, target groups of clients, different geographies, different way of aligning the way we do work because of new cross-border requirements, new regulatory requirements, new investor suitability requirements. So all of these new requirements as the world of finance evolved in the good times, in the bad times, and then recovering again after the crisis, just called for a lot of flexibility. And uh, if you're flexible enough to grasp different opportunities, I would say your career opportunities in finance are as big as a football field, right? You can go in every direction. But if you start saying, well, I'm not interested in working in HR, or I don't want to be in operations, or I'm not so keen in IT, or I only want to work in one geography, which is the city where I work, all of a sudden that football field becomes a handkerchief. So I really do think that that openness, that that mindset of let's go where the opportunities arise and and capture the trends, continue to learn along the way is probably good advice in an industry which is subject to so much change. Very nice. Very, very good advice. So we have come to the end already for today's Zoom o'clock. I'm sure we will have more Zoom o'clocks in the future. My question to you before I let you go, 
as we talked about books before. So what it was your latest inspirational book, your latest discovery, where when you were reading it, you were really like, wow, this really changed something, like that wow effect where that people can look up and uh, read themselves? Oh, gosh. Um That's a hard question because I've been writing so much lately that I haven't been reading as much as I normally do. But um, I think the latest book that I am still reading is 50 Swiss Women. And it's all about discovering the women who have been inspirational, pioneering so many things about the country that I live in that I wasn't even aware of. And you do realize how it's so important to get more female voices into the mainstream and into the media so that we can all be inspired by the hugely transformational efforts of uh, the people around us that sometimes are maybe not so visible on the forefront, but who are doing great things for society at large. Oh, that's interesting. I should maybe look into that as well, especially because in Switzerland, women still experience a quite significantly bigger pay gap than they have in any other country. I think in Davos, when you're at the Female Equality Lounge, that's always one of the biggest posters of Switzerland, that uh, that the biggest problem here for women is, for women is still that, um, among other things, of course. So I will check it out. Thank you so much. Um, I will put the link as well below for people to go and, and get this as well. Um, easier by a click of the hand. So this was this was our Zoom o'clock here today. I hope you enjoyed yourself, dear Mara. I did very much so. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for making the time. And make sure everyone knows where to find everything that we have been discussing in the links below of the video recording on YouTube and also on the different podcast channels. Please do sign up, share, comment and rate because only by sharing the love we can expand our geographics. Right now we are in number one in Luxembourg and Switzerland when it comes to educational podcasts. We are in Germany, number three. We are in Russia, South America and different other countries around the world. So the podcast is growing, the love is growing and that's all thanks to you. So thank you so much for tuning in and um, yeah, until we meet again. Thank you so much, Demara. Thank you, Tessie. Thank you for listening to this Zoom O'Clock. We hope this discussion was insightful and has provoked some new ideas for you. Please share and subscribe. If you like to keep in touch with your host, you can find her on Instagram under Tessie underscore from underscore Luxembourg and on Twitter under Tessie underscore DE. <laughs>